Um, our first speaker will be Professor Blum, and unless you change his title, I have read it. Okay, a modern take on the theodicy conundrum, comparing Kyoza Amashi and Soren Kierkegaard on Akonin Shoki. This is a paper about, not only about theodicy, but um, theodicy, if you don't know, is a, it, it comes out of the Western philosophical tradition. It's coined by Leibniz, who was uh, dated 1646 to 1716, uh, combining three words for God, seal, and justice. Okay. So, theodicy is not just about evil, it's about the problem of what evil suggests to us about justice in the world. So, um, and despite the fact that the Honorable Dr. Payne has uh, subscribed and created the frame for this conference uh, of being one in which we think that we are trying to bring into into the discourse of Western philosophy, uh, I uh, am a failure at that. So thank God. As Mark says, Mark laughs before telling his joke, but I will explain my story before I begin. And tell you that, in fact, what I do, uh, even though I may have some kind of backward contribution to uh, Western philosophical discussion, I'm really interested in Buddhist philosophical discussion. I'm interested in what Western philosophy can say about Buddhism, because I think Buddhism needs just as much help as Western philosophy does. Excuse me. So, um, and I'm committed to that very much so. Uh, and. Um, having said that, my um, you know a lot of reading I do more and more involves Western thinkers. I write more and more comparative papers, and I do have people who do Western philosophy. I published a paper on Kierkegaard years ago, and people in Japan came up to me and said, "Oh, come to our Kierkegaard conference." And so, but I can't. I don't really do that. So, uh, and I published a paper on Levinov also. Uh, any, I don't know if anyone ever saw that. That's in Japanese. But um, anyway, um, why I'm interested in this and why it's relevant. And what is, what is, what is Akinishoki? So I think most of you probably know what that is, but I'm going to sort of go through it uh, very simply. Um, but first of all, the conundrum of theodicy is a very significant problem for Western thought. And uh, since it stems from a very different kind of uh, paradigm about the relationship of religion to the world, uh, it only has uh, limited relevance to Buddhism. There is significant overlap, uh, not difficult all to point out, but it is fundamentally different, and the reason it's fundamentally different is the theodicy conundrum is basically how to account for the presence of evil in the world when God created the world, and God is good, and God is just, okay? So, this is what Leibniz was talking about, and it has been involved the question of why people do bad things, and why bad persists, uh, has been around since the days of the Greek and, um, and of course, if you know the Bible, you know that the most powerful, perhaps the most powerful book in the Bible is the book of Job, on an emotional level anyway. Because in the book of Job, God, God conspires to kick Job in the teeth, essentially, and says, okay, let's see what happens, you know. So, in other words, God and Satan conspire to test Job to see how strong Job's faith is. And so what happens to Job is essentially irrational, unexplained evil to a person who's a good person. Uh, Job has led an exemplary life, and God recognizes that. But it's convinced to say, well, yeah, but what are the limits of that? Uh, his commitment to justice and moral 
and worries of our behavior. And so God has essentially ruined Job, brings him to the point of death, going to his family, he's covered in, in terrible skin disease, he's really, really, he finally breaks down, and as expected, punishes this guy. So, <laughs> and that's when God intercedes and says, intercedes and says, hey, and, you know, and then of course, Job ends with God restoring, God restores Job, but of course, it's the, what is the point of the story? The point of the story is to, is to show the world that God is omnipotent, that God is in control, okay, uh, and that you better just accept it, okay. And if there is immorality to the way the world works, if there is justice, after all, a uh, great part of the motivation behind the religious impulse is to seek justice, because we know the world is inherently unjust, we see it all the time. And all religions speak to this, including Buddhism. What do we do about the people that are that are not morally uh, upright and yet succeed, and yet who we know who are morally upright and fail? You know, this is this is a problem. The problem for all religions, and all religions try to deal with this in some manner. So, um, Job does not really offer a solution from a human perspective. It offers a, a solution from a theological perspective, that is, God's perspective. So. Um, this was a constant problem in the West, and by the way, the constant, and usually expressed under the name evil. And those of you who read, for example, the Yuvangandi translations of uh, the works of, of Sinran and this time they show all these, the word Aku translated as evil. So Aku means guilty, and the, I don't know how, that, how that's rendered, but uh, you know, the Buddhist message is directed towards evil people. So one, one of the problems with this whole area of inquiry for me uh, is what aqua means and should be translated as evil. And let me say that I've been working on this for a couple of years and I initially really took issue with the idea of translating aqua as evil. Because if, if Buddha's vow is directed toward evil people, I don't, I may not be perfect, but I don't feel evil, you know. So, and my students always respond in that way too. And so if I tell them, yes, this is about evil people, then they all say, well, this doesn't pertain to me, you know. They just dismiss it as being irrelevant. This is some other kind of extreme, extreme religious uh, teaching here. But of course it's not. So, so, <laughs> so I, I, for, I've been resisting translating Oxford of Evil. Now, now, another reason that I got into this is because I'm also working on the Nirvana Sutra, the Mahaprabhu Nirvana Sutra in Chinese. Uh, which is a kind of unspoken hero, I think, of Sri Lanka. Uh, and it's particularly strong in Shinran's case. And Shinran quotes it extensively, but it's not well studied uh, these days by people who do Shin Buddhism. And it's not well studied in the West because you know, they have a good translation of it. Uh, and it used to be studied quite a lot in Japan before, but that's also sort of waned. So, um, I encountered the word Akhu all the time in the Ramsutra. And in fact, because I'm translating it for the book of the Nocho I also encountered the word Akuni, just like Akuni, the same word, evil people. And the time show, I encountered the Nirvana Sutra repeatedly. And this really struck me as odd. So, uh, I gave a paper at Stanford two weeks ago on the Nirvana Sutra, in which I decided, okay, again, like this panel, I was asked questions in advance for a topic, and that's the topic I gave them. And in researching the paper, I researched basically how the Ramana uses the word Aku. Uh, how, and discuss how it should be translated. Is it evil? Is it wicked? Is it a uh, mistake? Is it confused? Uh, it can mean all these things. Uh, am I an evil person or is it a bad person? Well, either can be a bad person, an evil person. 
Um, and uh, when I went through, because the text of digitized now, it's easy to find sentences. With these words, in the old days, we had to look for a whole life finding a word in the text. Now we get that in an hour. So, um, by reading these uh, various passages that would also appear, often with other characters with it as an adjective, it struck me as remarkably similar to the Tommy Show. And so I then began to look at the Tommy Show from the Vermont Super Perspective. Most of the time, not reading the paper. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so that was my conclusion, uh, is that in fact the Tommy Show notion of alchemy is based on the Vermont and you all think I'm crazy, but I'll comment that someday. <laughs> but I'm, I'm very convinced of that now. And I'm convinced of that not only because of the Tommy Show, the way it's used, but also because of the way Shinran quotes in Nirvana's extensively uh, in all of his writings, particularly in the Shogun Shinsho. And uh, if you remember the Shogun Shinsho in the chapter on faith, which is the biggest and most important chapter, uh, there's a long narrative uh, quote from Nirvana's stress. And that narrative is about Agatasatru, the Agate complex, okay, who is a prince who kills his father to take power. Okay? So it's a classic example of patricide for ambition, for political ambition, the story we've seen throughout the world. And the funny thing about that quote to me is not only does Shinran devote so much faith in the Soviet Union of this narrative, but that he chooses the Nirvana quote, when in fact the same story is in the Kongyo, the contemplation sutra. Kongyo being one of the three pure land sutras. The Shinran's basis of understanding, the Buddhist understanding is traditionally based on the three pure land sutras. Why is he going to Nirvana sutra for this? He doesn't have to. And I think he does, and I think that that appears in the chapter on faith specifically because there's something about the nature of faith that has to do with the nature of evil. And that the Nirvana sutra perspective informs his understanding of it. And that's, again, why I think Akhani. Now, the word Akhani, as I said, occurs many, many times in Nirvana sutra. Many more times than any material sutras, by the way. And there's something else that comes up in the Bible that I'll get to in a minute. Okay, now let's try to read the paper. It's okay. So, uh, what Leibniz does that's very interesting uh, in this book on theology of the 17th century is he talks about evil in terms of, he has many categories of evil. One of the categories is called metaphysical evil. And again, the way we use evil today in English, and the reason I have problems with translating aquity as evil people, is because we think of evil as injurious behavior, right? Uh, someone who does uh, injury to others and doesn't show remorse or runs away from his responsibility or something like that. But in fact, evil was considered in the context of theology, that is, as a philosophical problem in Western thought, includes suffering. And it not only includes suffering caused by someone, it includes suffering received by someone. So that's why the book of Job is also about the problem of evil. So if you think of uh, the philosophical use of the term of evil, then the opening evil, I think, is okay. See, not that people understand that when they see it that way, but, they, but that's precisely what the Western problem was about. For example, after Leibniz, one of the great problems in the discussion of theodicy in the West was, I think, in 1725 or so, there was a huge earthquake in Lisbon. Half the city was destroyed. This problem, and people, thinkers, well, you know, and this again is happening right at the time of the Enlightenment. So, uh, you know, French Enlightenment thinkers and all these, and uh, German and English, they're all thinking about, you know, what is our relationship to God, what is our relationship to truth and religion, 
And then the cigarette break happens and all these people who die, apparently, who are innocent. So that raises the question again, if God is in control and God created the universe and God is good, why do all these people die in an earthquake? So one thing that happens is Kant then creates separate categories. Leibniz didn't get that far in which he said we have natural evil, like earthquake, and we have moral evil, okay, which is based on human behavior, right? So, um, but that does it. Of course, that doesn't solve the problem. That just helps us <laughs> travel with it in a more analytical and more convenient manner. And then the other problem is, of course, that evil involves suffering. If we think of evil in terms of the problem of suffering, which is, again, the way it's frequently discussed uh, in, in that book. Uh, by the way, I have now five or six books just on evil. Okay, this is how big a topic it is. Uh, then we see, again, the overlap of Buddhism is very, very strong. Very strong. Because, really, the problem of evil in the world is absolutely parallel to the problem of suffering in Buddhism. Where does Dukkha come from? Why does Dukkha exist in this world in which we have Buddhism and Buddhists and Bodhisattvas and, and teachers and all sorts of people struggling very hard to get the truth out? Uh, and even, even the way uh, Dukkha works uh, within people who, can, who are spiritually advanced uh, is uh, fascinating. So, I mean, Mark's story about Kobori Roshi really struck me as an example of precisely that. That even enlightened Zen masters suffer from dukkha, okay? And that, in that sense, dukkha is a kind of universal um, dimension, human condition. And so, how does Buddhism, how does Buddhism account for that? It doesn't really account for it. There's no real explanation. The only uh, the explanation in the sutras of why we're born with dukkha is okay, pretty flimsy. Okay, I mean, comes from you know we have this kind of we have basic ignorance and that leads to misperception of things and that leads to suffering. Well, where does that basic ignorance come? It's the same kind of problem. You just keep going backwards and backwards and uh, you can't really find a solution to say, oh, it's past karma. That's it. Um, <laughs> so I think the reason also that I really you know, find this very important is that um, it's the question that we've been discussing all day about ethical responsibility uh, also relates to this. Because in some sense, the Buddhist problem of suffering and he is a Buddhist problem of suffering in everyone. But unlike the Europeans, they did not raise this to the level of the universal kind of neoplatonic ideal. That is, the, the Europeans in Italy had to recognize evil as a force in the world, okay? Not as a personal problem only, but as something that exists. And like truth exists, evil also exists. And when it reaches a kind of category like that, then it has to be accounted for in some way for any religious system. The Buddhist, to my knowledge, never did that. I don't know any Buddhist that did that. They talked about evil as a kind of, you know, abstract uh, a principle that operates in the world. Generally, the Buddhist attitude tends to be more about personal suffering, right? Personal, personal misunderstanding uh, and personal bad behavior. So that does lead to some different conclusions. I'll try to read the paper again. <laughs> okay, here we go. Uh, I don't know how much time I have. Just pull me off of the hook or something. <laughs> my interest way to this question is my study, uh, began with my study, uh, even before the monster of Gil Delamanti, founding president of Otan University, and the person really responsible for bringing the Tiny Show into public discourse. Beginning around 1894, in Japan, we see the simultaneous launching of various intellectual Buddhist associations that published journals. This didn't happen before this time. Um, all of these are rather short-lived because the associations that conceived them were similarly short-lived. The earliest publications uh, went from 1894 to 1899. It was simply called Hukyo, or Buddhism. 
Um, and most people have never seen this or heard of it. However, at the time it was very important because uh, it uh, published this statement. There was kind of a motto that went along with this journal, which was, we have entered the data out. So this is the modern condition. Uh, most likely the second Buddhist journal after that, or certainly the second uh, sort of known journal that comes after that, is the one started by the Shiozawa called Seishin the world of the spirit or something. Um, and that began sometime in the latter half of the 1890s. Um, now, although we have very high scholars upon the Tanisho from the Edo period from before this time, in fact, uh, explosive ideas like Akane Shoki or Shinran's statement in the Tanisho that he never once said the Nembu could work his parents, uh, led to the assumption that this work should only be shown to students in the seminary, uh, that is not to the general public, and therefore remain a sort of semi-secret test. Uh, like many legacies of the subcultures, Kiyosawa, however, decided that Shin Publisher was better off pulling this out into the public and decided he should publish it in the journal of Station Cards. So if it starts to come out serially, the beginning, very beginning of the 20th century, it goes over a period of seven or eight years, where in each one of the little chapter, it's published in the journal, and some commentary about it. And that's really when the public as a whole begins to read it. Now, this is important also, just historically, because if you ask an average Japanese person today, what's the one Buddhist book that you know about, someone who's not involved in Buddhist book, they'll probably say Tanisho. So if any book they would have read would be the Tanisho. And this only begins, again, the first part of the 20th century. So this is very, very interesting also. However, the Tanisho is kind of a typical book. <laughs> uh, and of course, the most difficult thing is this thing we call Akumi Shoki. Um, in Japanese, this is in Japanese, If good people can read the pure line, how much more is this true for evil people? Um, of course, this whole thing hinges on how you understand the phrase Iwanya, which could be equals about saying, or how much more so, or even more so. But whatever it, uh, it means in this case, it's clear the implication to place the emphasis on Akuni. Um, meaning the evil people. So Aku, for those of you who don't know Japanese, means bad or evil, uh, and mean, of course, is people. Um, and of course, this, this doctrine stated here is known as Aku uh, Anyone who reads, studies, or teaches the Tani show knows about this because among the many thought-provoking inspirational ideas, and this one is the most famous. But what is Shinran really trying to say here? We know he's not suggesting that doing evil deeds makes it easier for you to get into the pure land. In fact, the time itself warns against this mistaken interpretation. <laughs> it seems to me that three fundamental questions that have to be addressed in uh, sorting out Shinran's uh, position. First, about whom is this statement made? Second, what is meant by the word Akunin? And third, how should it be translated? I won't get to the translation part today because I'm already waiting on it, but first question uh, that I think is also worth talking about, does the opening, is opening Shoki a statement about the nature of the Buddha or the Buddha's vows? Okay. Or is opening Shoki a statement about us? If it's a statement about the Buddha, then the question becomes, does it reflect proper or, un or correct understanding of what the Buddha is doing in making the vows? Uh, as described in the sutras. Does Amin and Buddha actually intend his universal vow to prioritize bad or immoral or evil people over offending good people? Is this a fair or proper understanding of reading the scriptures, uh, or if you prefer to uh, the 18th vow itself, uh, which is of course the central one 
I would call it the Buddha-centered interpretation. The other interpretation, the, way to, the other way to read it, is to say that this is about human change, the Buddha-centered thing. Uh, you might call it the epistemological angle. It asks us, uh, what does Akhmi say about ourself, our self-awareness of the methods coming from the sutras? And in philosophical terms, is Akhmi Shilke a heuristic device requiring certain forms of knowledge? In this case, ten forms of knowledge. In, in this view, Akhmi Shilke is not a doctrine or a dogma we are required to believe in or accept as truth. It is not a directive from the Buddha. It is instead a kind of spiritual technology created for the purpose of causing us to awaken to something deeper than what we know. Now, as to how I propose to answer this question, let me first say that I've been working on this for a while and I have my own personal perspective, which may not correspond to whatever Orthodox Chin teaching is, either in Oregon, Kyoto, anywhere else. <laughs> and I'm not administering a little free over here. Um, but, um, as you can, myself, I think the word modern was in the original title paper, therefore I have a kind of modern perspective, uh, and that means that I believe that Akhmi Shoshi is not a statement about the Buddha, it's a statement about human things. Okay. And so if we read this to be an explanation of how to understand what the message is about, we're missing the point. Um, now, at least as I see it. When we consider what Akhmi Shoki suggests about us, everything gets much more interesting also because it opens doors to a large question, of course, of what Akhmi means. Uh, what Akhmi means in the sutras, what Akhmi means in the time period, and of course, what Akhmi means today. Uh, Alright, let's first consider what the science itself says about the problem of Akhmi. In chapter 3, the text explains the so-called good people are those caught up in doing good, uh, so caught up in doing good, they're unable to totally rely on the power of the Buddha. Here is what's meant that Aku is part of a pair of terms that's used very, very frequently. Then and Aku, then being good, Aku being bad. Uh, and so we naturally, therefore, uh, at first would expect Aku to refer to karmically bad actions. That is, action causes bad karmic results. And whatever Tanisha means by the use of Aku, that dimension always must be there. Um, but Tanisha, of course, is using this a little bit different way. Even though it talks about Akunin and Zenmi, bad people and good people, it's clear where that these things are linked, okay? They're kind of mutually dependent upon each other in some way. Um, so the critique, therefore, interestingly, normally you would expect the critique to be of bad people doing bad things, the critique of Akunin. But the critique of the Tanisha is of the Zenmi, of the good people. It doesn't really go into who the Akunins are, just as you know that already. Um, so it reverses the polarity, it's like the north and south pole going upside down, and now we're going to, huh? Which it is. Which it is, okay. And so maybe it started in the 13th century of science school, but anyway. <laughs> and so instead we have to consider what these good, what good people are doing that's not good. Okay. Uh, again, in Japanese, Jiriki Pastelmento, those people who are committed to living a proper life, uh, via doing good, uh, in a jiriki manner, okay, uh, and abstaining from evil, are lacking in the ability to totally give themselves over to the original or the other power, sorry. Let's say are, they are not of the original vow, or they are not within the original vow. That's a very powerful statement. Um, 
condemnates the good people, therefore, is based on the commitment to ethical and moral behavior. Notice this is not a statement about GDP practice. There's no mention of women's practice here. It's simply people who do good in a GDP manner. Now, you can, um, he can correct that and say, oh, well, it's really talking about the long time. But uh, that's not what it says, no offense. Uh, <laughs> because, in fact, the idea of GDP, uh, GDP and people who do good, uh, who do, make, do good behavior on the basis of GDP, GDP here clearly implies they make a judgment by themselves. This is a good choice, and this is what I'm going to do. People who are committed to that kind of lifestyle, the time goes criticized. For people, those people don't get tired. Okay. They don't get it. They're not, that's not what the Buddha is interested in. Buddha is not within the, the, uh, the scope of the home guard. Okay. There's a problem for technical behavior. Okay. Um, so, in this sense, the time itself sets up a kind of double paradox. Okay. The first paradox is that salvation lies in problematizing good behavior. Whoops. Okay. So, even though we spent a lot of time teaching all the people around us who will listen to us uh, to do good, the Chinese are saying that the more you do that, the less chance you have of being saved. That's the first problem. <laughs> Second problem is by doing this, if this home gun is not out of it, I'm included within the home gun, that means they ain't catching for the pure land. That means this is no longer a universal vow. We have now clearly prescripted a, a group to be excluded, okay? And who are they? They're the good people, okay? <laughs> so, um, five minutes. Oh, we're on page four. Okay. <laughs> All right. Okay, I will, uh, I will keep reading and now do it really fast, okay? <laughs> Uh, in any case, um, so as you can imagine, this leads to lots of trouble. And um, so I won't quote the various people that have been talking about the time they feel, the Edelberry commentary, the various things that Kildow says about it. Uh, but those who don't have read Kildow's writing, um, he takes a very strong pro financial position, as you can imagine, and Kildow actually comes to the conclusion that that ethical behavior is inimical, that is, is the opposite of religious. Okay. That if we pursue an ethical path, we will never get to the truth. Uh, and I think he's more or less following the comedy show here. So he has long essays uh, on the moral choices. And on what basis do we decide what is good and what is bad? And even after we think we know what is good, we're never completely sure. And then we try to implement that good choice and we find that we can't implement it. It doesn't go the way we should. Think of poor Hillary Clinton. She's doing everything right and she can't win, you know? So, <laughs> So for Chiazawa, this is an important process, okay, to get to Tai Chi. Well, we don't. Okay, now, now how does this relate to the Nirvana Sutra? This is perhaps even more interesting. The Nirvana Sutra, again, I'm going to go to the line there, but there are three things in the Nirvana Sutra. Three bad evil guy categories. Okay, leave it more than under. Either guy So the first is Akane and Grab People. The second is something called Ichantika. Now, if you're not a biologist, you've probably never heard about this, but Ichantika is a special word that appears for the first time in the Ramasutra. The Ramasutra is written right after the Lotus Sutra. So it's very much aware of the Lotus Sutra, even close to the Lotus Sutra by name, at least once. And yet it has this idea that it's not in the Lotus Sutra, that they are Ichantika. Ichantika are the real bad guys. Okay. 
So Rogerman has this very interesting, very influential idea that every person has a Buddha nature. The notion of Buddha nature, that you see the Buddha nature become a Buddha, so basic to the Zen school, comes from the Nirvana Sutra. Everybody has a Buddha nature. And, and the Buddha repeatedly talks about this. He talks about that people don't understand it because they're so with it. And he hasn't been talking about it before, that's another reason. Um, but then there are these Tantrika people who, when they hear the Buddha talk about this, say, what? They reject it, they don't listen to him, they don't hear it, okay? Uh, and these times ago, our people, it certifies the Buddha, the Buddha says, they don't have a chance, everyone has to put an issue, everyone's going to go with Buddha, except these times ago, they're excluded. So, okay, well, uh, it's sort of a almost universal, sort of like the time you show the Zen, you don't get a material on the week, right? And then, however, later on, the Buddha reverses himself, and he says, I may have said that before, but I was setting you up, okay? <laughs> Uh, and the whole purpose of the exercise is to get you not to take the words literally, not to be attached to the surface meaning of them. But in fact, you have to see the Buddha and always say the opposite of what you seem to be saying. Now, this is a kind of strange rhetorical way of, of, of <laughs> preaching, but this is actually consistent with so much of the Buddhist scriptures, which always go through some negative thing to get to some positive thing. There has to be indication of the affirmation, and they're often sort of doing the same thing. So, uh, and speaking of the, this is not, speaking of the question of self that we were just talking about, first base, one of the big, another big thing in Ron Zipper is there is a self and it is happy and it's permanent, okay? So, uh, in fact, we call it an awesome, by the way, but anyway, there are lots of things, so then we have these kinds of, uh, they don't get it, they don't have good nature, but then they do have good nature. We have awesome okay, and we have another, category, which is the category of homu, which if you know Japanese, you know these ordinary people. Okay. What are the ordinary people? Now, the ordinary people in the Rana Sutra are not, I don't know what, we all, you all think that word means, and what I thought it meant was pretty simplistic until I began to really read this stuff. Akane is not folk stories, you know, farmer out there, reading a good life, living hard, simple values, you know, that, that she has driven humanity. Akane and the Rana Sutra are dumb idiots. You know, there are also average, stupid people who are narrow-minded, conservative, are not open to things that they don't expect to hear, and have resistance to wrapping their mind around a new concept. That's really what the Obomu are. So I began to say, oh, there's kind of a similarity here. So then I took all, not all, so many, about 50 quotes of Obomu, average, ordinary people, of Akunim, evil people, or bad people, and the Tantrika, okay, people who are destined not to become Buddhists, but in the end they do have a tent, an outside tent, right? And I have to put them side by side and look at them and guess what, folks? They're the same. The discussion, the critique is almost identical. I'd say 80% of the critique, the content is the same. Wow, what does that tell us? That tells us that evil people, people who we think have no chance of being saved, are ordinary people, okay? Ordinary people. And so what are ordinary people? The people who are not enlightened. Who are those people? Those are people who think they know what they're doing, but they don't know what they're doing. They don't get it. They don't, they're not with the program, right? So, this is precisely what I think the Tanisha was talking about. So, I don't need a lot of discussion of who the Buddha likes and who the Buddha doesn't like. Uh, it'll be a commentary say this, you know, says, a lot of people say this, in fact, that from the Buddhist perspective, there is no distinction between good and bad people. The Buddha sees everybody equal. He sees all things of change equal. The Buddhist method may change depending on the audience, but the core uh, sense of compassion, 
never changes. That's universal. That, that cannot be even questioned. Otherwise, it's not a Buddha. So therefore, it's really us and understanding what's happening here. And here, you know, Kierkegaard becomes quite relevant. Kierkegaard talks about this stuff, you know, writing in the, uh, again, so my modern taking was 19th century, but Kierkegaard writing in the early part of the 19th century talks about the fact that we are alienated from who we are. That in fact, we, we have, uh, for him, faith is a gift, like it is in Shinshu, but in fact, without willful activity, that faith is not realized, that faith is simply like a tree falling in the forest that nobody hears. And so we have to actively participate, okay, uh, in, in expressing that faith and living that faith. But in fact, we're unable to do so in a really complete manner. And so we are commonly disappointed with ourselves. And that's the alienation that Shepard is talking about. And so, the human condition is such that nobody is outside that dilemma, okay? And so, and he has his most famous book is called The Sickness Unto Death, and that sickness unto death is despair. And despair comes from the fact that we cannot live the religious life the way we're supposed to. So, Kierkegaard is talking about I am and I am, okay? So, for him, it's despair, it's serious, it's not a, you know, it's what um, he calls it authentic despair, as opposed to sort of like daily life and stuff, he has a parking system on. <laughs> I mean, pull up. Zero minutes, okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, any conclusion I've had at times? Uh, I guess I want to say that, um, finally, that, uh, Kierkegaard talks about this relationship we have to our faith and to our condition as one of practice. That in fact we have to approach religion in a passionate manner, and at the same time that passion is insufficient. Okay, and so our choice is to give up, split our wrists. Okay, which he does not advocate, but in fact try to live authentically. But living authentically cannot be done in a rational manner most of the time, or some of the time, at least because the nature of truth is beyond our understanding. And so that kind of conflict, right? Kierkegaard readily admits, which led to him being isolated, alienated, and criticized heavily in his native Denmark for publishing things that everyone said was anti-church. But he became kind of a hero, you know, in the 20th century. So, um, uh, I think, you know, people like Kierkegaard, people like Shinran, people like Kiyosawa are living an authentic religious life, and in fact, life leads them to the conclusion that for me to try to live an ethically proper life is kind of self-deception. Because I'm too invested in proper ethical choice, then that has to be sacrificed for my religious truth. That's the kind of passion that Kierkegaard is talking about, that I think Shinran is talking about, and that Kiyosawa is talking about. Now, does that exclude ethical behavior? Not at all. But you have to understand it uh, in, in relationship to that process, that kind of self self okay. That's the thing. <laughs>